Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. And welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. And what object do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number 16, a pickaxe, secret sites and sunken silos, plumbing the depths. If you have ever visited an Elizabethan stately home in England, you might have been shown, as a contrast to the splendour of the place, a priest hole a hidden room, a secret chamber in the house where a Catholic priest could be hidden from Walsingham's Protestant agents. When you look into such a place, you can feel both fascination and a tingle of horror that a person might have hidden in such a hole, and if found, maybe face interrogation, torture and a barbaric execution. Secrecy pricks up the ears. There are secret societies, secret service... Secret police. Secret sites exist for a purpose, to protect people's freedom or to protect political despots from their own populace. These sites are intriguing to people and have a legacy from the past, such as the Churchill War Rooms under Whitehall and Hitler's Führerbunker in Berlin. They also still exist today, tucked away in remote locations and buried under familiar landmark buildings in our nation's capitals. Jamie, secret sites start us off with the big reveal. Well, people love secret sites, as you said, secret police, secret services, secret societies. And throughout history, you've always had secret locations. On the one hand, you have the priest holes that you mentioned, and the guy who designed and built so many of them, Nicholas Owen, he ended up on the rack and gave nothing away. He actually exploded on the rack because his hernia burst open. But I've crawled in to many of the sites that he designed, and one was at Huddington Court, and it's extraordinary, this place linked to the gunpowder plot, that the priest hid in there and the hinges are still the same, the trap door is still the same. Cowton Court, there are others sort of built into the structure of the building made to look like a fake tower. Are they um, very small or are they like a a whole room? They are very cramped and those priests sometimes stayed there for weeks and came out with jaundice. I mean they weren't pleasant places. The pursuivants who were hunting them down, hunting the priests, always waited around waiting for the priest or whoever was hiding there, the recusant, to, to emerge, thinking that they had all left, and then was caught. And, and this happened all the time. And then facing them were, of course, the spy masters. We've talked quite a lot in the past of Walsingham and Robert Sissel. Walsingham ran an extraordinary spy operation from his secret bases, his homes or his sort of safe houses. Uh, one was near the Tower of London where he had his cryptanalysts, cryptographers, those who steamed open envelopes. Um, in Barn Elms where he had his main house, he had 80 
horsemen ready to take messages across the country and to the ports where secret messages be taken to agents overseas. So it you, was a big operation. Do you think in, in, in those days it was a sort of secondary thing, that it became a, a secret place, that it was his, his, his home initially and then it became a sort of secret centre of operations? Completely. And as their power grew, as their influence grew, then there was more secret activities. What's amazing is even today, there are so many buildings linked to the secret intelligence service and to to the British establishment that are still steeped in history. You go beneath the main building at the Ministry of Defence and there are Henry VIII's wine cellars, but at the end is a steel door with communication centre on it. So it's this fusion of secrecy and history and modernity. I mean, hundreds of millions of pounds goes into some of these sites, and we'll talk about that later. Great. Well, we've got a few different big reveal objects, such as the Führer bunker, and also where they kept the V2 weapons uh, in the Second World War. What was special about them? Well, I mean, the Führer bunker was extremely important, and certainly in the closing days of the war. And one of the problems with secret locations is quite often the despot who is existing within those walls underground is trapped there. You know, you think it's a command centre, but all too easily a command centre can become uh, the His last... Prison. Yes, and the mm. last redoubt. I mean, I know two people, friends of mine, whose fathers separately went into the Führer bunker after Hitler had killed himself as part of military intelligence. And they ended up just souvenir hunting, basically. One ended up with a field telephone and one ended up with a stack of medals and an SS dagger. So it's amazing what trophy hunters could pick up in these places. Oh, they were lucky not to get shot for looting. Well, exactly. But, But this idea of the big reveal is because politics changes wars sort of end and cold wars end and so a lot of the sites that are linked to them then become revealed it's quite interesting that during the uh, july 20 plot against hitler the stauffenberg plot to blow him up the putsch in germany the putsch in berlin that failed you can see different sites that were linked to it that you became known to the plotters. I mean, the plotters, for example, who were based at the Bendlerstrasse, the, the reserve army headquarters, they wanted to know where the SS bases were because the SS and Gestapo were building sort of their own secret barracks. And they did it. The plotters discovered where these were simply by looking at secret Berlin police records that showed where prostitution uh, had gone up in the weeks before, and that showed that the SS had opened another barracks. So these secrets are revealed in many different ways. Right. The SS all had to have their bottoms spanked once a week. Is that right? Who doesn't, Tom? <laughs> but the, but and what about the KGB? The KGB has so many uh, locations and, and training camps. I mean, one of the best known, actually, was the Red Banner Academy, in which their foreign intelligence officers were trained. And, you know, it was known actually as School 101, and it's in the woods 50 miles north of Moscow. And it had this aura about it, and it trained many, many 
officers, both legal and illegal, those who went under diplomatic cover, those who posed as journalists or businessmen or whatever other uh, profession or trade uh, they were posing as abroad. But again, we have this sort of idea of these incredibly cold-blooded professionals. But actually, when you look at it, the KGB had so many, a plethora of incompetent, corrupt, idle uh, officers all around the world. Yeah, well, as mo- the moment they got to the West and saw that uh, living conditions were so much better, I mean, they were, they were tempted, weren't they? It was only the true fanatics who could keep at it. And quite often you could spot them a mile off. I remember being at a conference and there were a host of Czech STB intelligence officers there and they wouldn't have learnt anything because I was one of the speakers. (laughs) Yes, they would have learnt the wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) Plainly. But uh, possibly the most competent secret uh, service in the world is the famous Israeli Mossad. Yes, and, and, and... It's extraordinary how they uncover secrets. I mean, there was that case in 2018 where they found uh, a highly secret uh, warehouse in the suburbs of Tehran, got in there and managed to cut their way through 32 safes, uh, remove 50,000 pages of intelligence material on the Iranian nuclear program, um, hundreds of disks and memory sticks, and walked out with half a ton of information and spirited back to Israel. And can you imagine, I mean, going into Tehran, I mean, those guys must be insanely brave as well as good at what they do. And extremely well-informed, I mean, whether it was signals intelligence or a source on the inside. Yeah. But, but they've got extremely good intelligence, and it, and it shows in the number of Iranian nuclear scientists they've managed to polish off. So they're, they're, they're operating pretty freely. Uh, in Iran. And and it helps that the Iranian political system has so many fissures, so many rivalries, uh, so many different political groupings. So they can recruit people on the ground. It it makes it easier uh, to to exploit the situation. Step back in time and to Paris and the French Revolution. Um, There are secret places, secret hidey holes, um, where the aristocrats who are going to be guillotined were kept before their moment of execution. Yes, the conciergerie. And if you go there today, there's a ladder, and it's always claimed that that was Robespierre's ladder up to his bedroom. So you go up and down, basically uh, coming downstairs to interrogate prisoners. So it's this change of politics, the change of an era or the change of government and and the, the ending of wars that, that reveal what is there and, 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 and time and history move on. And so many of these secret locations, command sites, are left behind, just like the nuclear bunkers that one finds scattered across the world today. And we might just mention that Robespierre ended up under the uh, uh, jaws of Madame Guillotine himself. Is Madame Guillotine suddenly a tranny? <laughs> you know, wasn't, wasn't she called Madame Guillotine? Yeah, you just said himself. <laughs> himself being Robespierre. So that's really the, what the big reveal is about. It's, it, it's the fact that so many of these secrets, things that were once secret, are now revealed to the public gaze. And why were there no escalators uh, on the London underground in the 60s? 
Well, it's always said that there, there was a, a dearth of uh, escalators because so many were going to fit out nuclear bunkers, particularly a, a large one near Box and a large one in Wiltshire uh, under Salisbury Plains. So uh, escalators were disappearing. <laughs> there's, so, there's so little use for those bunkers today. These secret sites end up being revealed eventually, but... When they're in operation, they are often used as command centres. Can you give me some examples, Jamie? Yes, I mean, there are a lot around, and and they've been popularised by movies who always show a sort of Doctor Strange love environment in which people are sitting in front of big screens, and they are quite like that. I mean, Northwood, which is the joint operations centre for British forces around the world, that organised so many uh, British military adventures abroad, whether it's Libya or Iraq or anywhere else. There is a nuclear bunker there. It's called The Hole. And it's this extraordinary blend of sort of Second World War gallery that you stand on um, and large screens. And a curse can be put anywhere anywhere in the world and you will get all the intelligence of what's going on there whether it's how many Russian ships in harbour, how many Russian sailors are whoring ashore, whatever. And you can get all that information. So it's important for any military or for any civil government to know what is going on and to have all that information synthesised and fused. And most of these bunkers are built on springs, um, as in coil springs, uh, shock-absorbent springs, so that a nuclear burst somewhere near might rock the land around or the mountains around or wherever you've got your bunker, but it's not going to uh, affect the bunker itself because there are filters, there are blast-proof doors that are three to six feet thick, and you can seal yourself in for a long time. Um, a lot of these bunkers, a lot of the space in these bunkers is is underused. I mean, you go to... Uh, Mount Cheyenne today and the American uh, Space Force and a lot of that land, a lot of that underground space is, is not actually being employed for that purpose. You know, And there is a vast amount of space. I well, mean, what I, are they using it for? A lot of it is just storage. A lot of it is there ready for an emergency. And there are always other agencies that want to be involved, that want to, to have space there, whether it's signals intelligence, whatever. Uh, you know, in in Cheyenne, you've got, I think it's fifteen buildings, three story buildings built underground. Again, all built on springs. I mean, that place is built under two thousand feet of granite. It can probably take a the shock of a thirty megaton blast just just a mile away. So you know, they're, they're very well dug in. I mean, that's really why the Americans have developed. Uh, massive earth penetrator weapons to try and get bunkers used by the Iranians and others in times of conflict. And if it could take a nuclear bomb, those sort of locations are very difficult to dig out with conventional weapons. But, you know, you you get an American 15-tonne bomb sort of being aimed straight and true. And a lot of damage could be done, certainly to the services that support those facilities. And what about the Presidential Operations Centre under the White House? 
yeah, that's under the east wing of the White House. But again, uh, not much is known about it, not, not much is filtered into the public domain, and for obvious reasons. But uh, places like that have always been covered by movies. I mean, movies have always come up with what the inside of Air Force One or the inside of the Presidential Emergency Operations Centre are like. Um, but don't you think that the truth is nearly always more prosaic? I mean, you, you watch Stanley Kubrick's movie, How I Learned to Love the Bomb, and it's a fantastic operations centre. And then you see the photograph of Obama and his chiefs of staff and advisers watching the demise of Osama bin Laden, that mission. And he's in a sort of what looks like a narrow corridor, um, sitting in a little chair. Well, so much can be done on a laptop these days. But it still helps to have large maps. And certainly when I went down into Northwood, I was pretty impressed by the global maps sort of projected on screens in front of the main command desks. So that still exists. But as I said, you know, so much can be done on a laptop. So much information can be synthesised and fused just, just on a personal computer these days. I mean, a lot of the time, these places never get used. I mean, I know that Churchill's war, war rooms were, were heavily used in the Second World War, but, but most of the time, they would never, hopefully, never get used. And so they just gather dust, and eventually you know, the kit's too old, and they just get kind of closed down. Well, you look at Project Greek Island in West Virginia. I mean, that could take the whole of Congress, basically, uh, both the Senate and House of Representatives. What would be the idea would be to put them in there and then seal them in? Well, <laughs> yes, mercifully. But, but that's based under a hotel in West Virginia. So, you know, and that has never had to be used. But I think it's still maintained. And a lot of the, the stuff is visible from, from above ground. But you've got to stick these people somewhere. And it makes them feel better about themselves. And, and do we have uh, the equivalent, say, for the RAF in the UK? There's, there's High Wycombe, former Bomber Command headquarters, where, of course, your grandfather was based. And that has a bunker. At these places, there's always a lot of razor wire around. There are always a lot of people in berries carrying submachine guns. The, um, the greatest damage I ever inflicted there was giving an after-dinner speech. <laughs> I well, that place is compromised as well. Completely. I do remember your grandfather's portrait gazing down at me. <laughs> he wouldn't have approved. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't ejected too quickly from the place. I'm glad but, to hear it. So, so you, do get these, you do get a lot of these places. and There is, of course, Raven Rock on the Blue Ridge Summit in Pennsylvania, or Site R, as it was known. And that, that was developed from the 1950s onwards. And that was the alternative Pentagon, the underground bunker for the Pentagon. But again, these places are so little used. And quite often when there's an emergency, they can be found wanting. I mean, after 9-11, when the president was sort of sent, sent away from Washington, he ended up having to use his cell phone to contact his his key advisers. Because all these sort of special hardwired communications channels didn't work. 
Yes, that's one of the reasons. So it's only in a real emergency that, that properly tests these things. And quite often, after the billions of dollars that are spent on things, they're, they're found wanting. So do you think sometimes they just they dig these holes just to make the politicians feel better? Yes. I, I mean, it's, it's something must be done. So something tends to be dug and you end up with a bunker, a nicely fitted out bunker. But you know, whether it's the Cobra briefing is, you know... Uh, under Whitehall or anything else, they're, they're, they're not quite as cool and impressive as you think they're going to be. And you look at the Russian one, for example, I mean, the Russians have spent a great deal of money on their uh, command bunker one and a half miles south of the Kremlin on the Moskva River. They've spent a fortune and it's got three glass atriums with command sections. Uh, one is for nuclear strategic forces, one is for combat control, and one is for day-to-day -day logistics uh, for an emergency. And, of course, you always get photos of Putin sitting in front of a screen. But I remember the days when, essentially, uh, Soviet missile sites were being compromised because people were digging up the copper wires leading to them. So, so again, press the fire button and nothing happened. Exactly. I mean, real life intrudes, and that, that's always the case. So command centres lead us neatly onto bunkers, hidey holes, and tunnels. There are always going to be tunnels, Tom, wherever you go, and underground facilities. If you go to Nevada today, uh, much of that area is essentially uh, testing ground, secret underground facilities and, and much of that was dug out in the 50s and 60s but is re-employed if you take somewhere like area six that was used for underground nuclear testing a lot of that area today is used for drone development in the same way that the rest of nevada was used to test and develop uh, stealth aircraft for example uh, you know and so many people so many onlookers and observers never knew what uh, these strange aircraft, these strange things in the sky was. Do you think that's why they've got so many UFOs there? Oh, completely. And it always helps the military that people do think they're UFOs. Yes, so they can, they, they can deny that it's uh, their latest bit of kit. Yes. Uh, Bill Hicks, the comedian, always used to say, why, why do aliens always land in, in the back of beyond, in Turtle Hicksville, uh, where people don't have opposable thumbs? <laughs> he said, do you think they come off their spacecraft pulling trailers they're looking for the resources <laughs> in the wrong place yeah in, indeed so you know uh, you know and this happens everywhere you you get facilities from the past redeployed reassigned in exactly the same way that castles have been re redesigned redefined today i mean up on the western heights above dover the citadel there has been reassigned as a an immigrant clearing Centre, uh, Fort St Elmo, where, on which we've done a podcast, that is an immigration clearing centre as yeah. well. So They get a new use. They get a new use, and, and bunkers can be useful. And I guess the American use of Nevada, uh, the, the, um, the military use of Nevada, goes back to the Manhattan Project in the Second World War, really, originally. Of course. I mean, all around New Mexico, Nevada, wherever you want to go, there are sites, just as there were a lot of silos left over from missile launch sites uh, throughout the whole of America, um, when a lot of America's nuclear deterrent was land-based. and the, the Russians 
tend to prefer land-based systems because they don't always have access to the sea for nuclear ballistic missile submarines. We have that luxury in the West of, of using ballistic missile submarines. People who are very good at digging tunnels are the North Koreans. Oh, throughout the 70s and the 60s, they were, they were digging tunnels through the demilitarized zone into uh, South Korea, and, and several of those have been found. Quite a lot haven't been found, but I think four or five have, have certainly been uncovered, uh, including the third tunnel regression, as it's called, and that's about a kilometre and a half long. Uh, it's over 70 metres underground, and is believed to have been able to contain about 30,000 troops for a surprise attack. I like the excuse that the North Koreans made when it was discovered that they said it was a coal mine. North Korea is not just known for these mysterious tunnels, but they have many prison camps hidden away all over the country. It's always been estimated there have been over 200,000 prisoners, and many of them are the children and grandchildren of those who tried to defect to other countries. Uh, one of the most notorious was uh, prison number 14. They can't even be bothered to give them names, there are so many of them. And it's been said that in camps like that, if you're not executed or beaten to death, the amount of food you get is so appallingly low that you either starve to death or you end up, uh, as has been recounted by eyewitnesses, you end up having to eat other people's vomit. Oh, um, my God. Or hunting down snakes and rats. And only one person has got out of prison number 14, and he always claimed he, he, he made his escape because he was desperate to go and have food in China. Oh. The tactics that the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were using uh, during such things as the Tet Offensive, uh, they were using tunnels. They were digging tunnels all the, all the time, uh, including the, the Kuchi tunnels, of course. Um, in, you know, they had huge tunnel complexes. Was this a sort of stay-behind operation, so then they would pop up? Yes, and they were very effective. And the Americans deployed tunnel rats, small guys who could go down and, and fight below ground. But it was pretty unenviable task, frankly. Hideous. Yeah. So the really private, really secret places are the spy bases. Yes, and they tend to stay within the realm of secret government, really. They don't tend to change with time. You, know, you don't find journalists or historians trawling over those areas, uh, and they retain their secrets over time. OK, well, then in the UK, what, what about Fort Moncton? That's a perfect example of this fusing of history with modernity, just like the uh, Henry VIII's wine cellars under the Ministry of Defence. Uh, Fort Moncton is in Gosport, near Portsmouth, is on Stokes Bay, and that is a key training site for MI6 officers, the British Secret Intelligence Service. They have a helicopter landing pad there, they have two firing ranges there for pistols and some machine guns. Uh, it was used a long time ago for stay-behind agents, for training those during the Cold War. So a lot has happened there. They have lecture rooms above the gatehouse. They have a suite of rooms in which C, the chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, can stay and often does. 
It's where Gordievsky, the Soviet defector, uh, lived for a while, while he was being debriefed. Um, he was even de debriefed by William Casey, Bill Casey of the CIA, uh, who flew in by helicopter to uh, be told everything that Gordievsky knew. And yet the building, or the structure of the building, is Georgian. Exactly. It is that fusion of modernity and, and historic uh, that, that really summarises, I suppose, British intelligence. And as we know, British intelligence goes back a long way. And there's even a museum there of, of MI6's greatest moments or some of its uh, more extraordinary operations. It even has a suitcase of, of Oleg Gordievsky in which he was smuggled out of Russia with uh, back in the 1980s. OK, well, so that's uh, Fort Moncton. But also, what about Hanslip Park? I mean, that's a building that was built originally in 1692. And it was acquired by the British government in 1942 and used by Section 8, the communications and technical side of MI6. And it is still, although it has the name Government Communications Service, it is still used really as technical support. Producing so that's the uh, the Q branch, the quartermaster, the, essentially, the kit. Essentially, yes, it's producing all the technical gadgetry and wizardry uh, that intelligence operations require. So it supports them around the world. And a great deal of money has been spent on Hanslow Park. Uh, you know, there are a lot of outbuildings. Uh, hundreds of millions of pounds have been spent. Um, and it's one of those locations, like Fort Moncton, that is surrounded by uh, lines of razor wire, by motion detectors, CCTV, and guards who are going to appear if you go anywhere near it. Uh, these are places you're not going to get much detail on if you check with Google Maps. Apart from human intelligence, agents in the field and so on, there's the very important area of communications intelligence, signals intelligence, and there are all sorts of places dotted around the world which deal with that particular aspect. And that is an area that costs billions of dollars and pounds for the Western allies. It's incredibly important. So whether you go from the building known as the Donut at Cheltenham for GCHQ, the Government Communications Headquarters, or to Fort Meade, the headquarters of the National Security Agency in the United States. You know, these are key locations and obviously extremely secret. But the outposts that they have across the world are even more secret and often in very remote locations. Yeah, they've got one in uh, Pinewoods in Australia. That's right. And that's sort of co-run with the National Security Agency between the Americans and the Australians. And the Brits have a hand in that too. And then, of course, for us, We've had a long association with Cyprus and have sovereign bases there for our military. They have RAF Trudos on the uh, Mount Olympus range. Yes, Mount Olympus has been incredibly important to British interests and to allied interests. Again, the National Security Agency um, have uh, their fingers on that as well. I mean, it's extremely important to the West in terms of listening in to the Near East, to, to, to everything that's going on in Lebanon, Syria and elsewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean. So it's true that Britain's overseas possessions are extremely useful from a strategic point of view. 
it can ebb and flow. But whether you look at the Ascension Islands or Mount Trudos or many of the other areas of the world, they are extremely useful either for space command, for space forces in the States, uh, or for Western signals intelligence. And what's interesting is that some of these islands that Britain still owns, the Foreign Office doesn't actually possess maps for them. That's what's so extraordinary. They've kept it that secret. It is that secret, and, and people don't know about them. So, I mean, yes, because it often seems odd that we, you know, we got rid of our empire really some time ago, and yet we've got these kind of little bits and pieces left over. But they've actually turned out to be some of the most useful little bits and pieces. It's often the way, because the more remote they are, the less interference you're going to get from foreign spies, foreign intervention, in terms of where you cite your signals intelligence bases or your space observation locations. And I guess for the locals living there, sometimes the entire economy of the island will link into that particular base anyway. Sometimes the locals are removed, as in Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. And that's why there's still court cases going on today. Because they want to go home. Well, that's one of the things. Since 9-11, we have become familiar with the term extraordinary rendition. And secret air bases are a way of nations projecting their power. Can you give us some examples of those, Jamie? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And frankly, whether it's a military cargo plane or a Gulfstream 4 uh, taking uh, terrorist suspects hither and thither, there are many locations that are used. And you know, the spy bases might be sitting back at home or on remote islands, but air bases are there really to project influence and project power and give options to those nations that might need them. Uh, in times of crisis and conflict. So, uh, for example, there's a large air base in Nicaragua, Sotocano, and that was used uh, by the US during the Sandinista controversy, the Iran-Contra um, rebel controversy. There's still an American presence there today, I mean, much smaller. But, uh, again, the sort of uh, the tactics, the focus of our attention has changed because now the problem is the Honduran drug traffickers, for example. So that's why the Americans have a presence there. But actually, smaller airstrips are far more useful and far more flexible uh, for those sorts of operations. And less expensive, I guess. Less expensive, and it's easier to uh, basically launch raids uh, or provide surveillance operations from them. And the Americans, uh, they even had one in Uzbekistan. They did, K2. Uh, the Uzbeks eventually turned around and said, we don't want you here. But that cropped up because it was needed for supporting operations in Afghanistan. So air bases sort of come and go. You can put up an air base very rapidly. Um, you know, it's, it's a quick fix solution. Uh, for for tactical situations that you might come across. Well, I guess, I guess it depends on the kind of aeroplane, doesn't it? Because, I mean, if it's heavy enough, then they have to put down concrete and then it suddenly becomes more of a, a job than just having a, a smaller airfield where you can jump a uh, small craft on and off. Except that airlifters today often have a tactical role and can take off and land on unprepared airstrips. So right. you get an aircraft like the C-17 and... 
it has a tactical role, just like the C-130 Hercules. Now, that wouldn't have happened a few decades ago when that technology, that ability to do that, didn't exist. OK, well, so they could pretty much land in a field. Yes, they certainly could do that. And you know, as, as we've seen with getting uh, people out from Afghanistan uh, in, in a rush, so you do need aircraft that can land and take off on a dime. And the Chinese, they're hard at it in the Spratly Islands, building bases, aren't they? Yes, and they have no intention of removing those bases. So those are strategic. They want to own, they want to put down a marker and say, we own the South China Sea and prevent anyone else from dominating that region. And it's, it's one of the reasons is they don't have a decent blue water navy. They don't have aircraft carriers. So they are building at a very, very rapid speed, uh, airstrips, air bases uh, on coral reefs. So well, What is that, as an alternative to aircraft carriers? Yes, and to say we are here permanently. So what they do is they crowd out other nations, whether it's Indonesia or the Philippines, from, from contested islands, from their areas. They blockade them. And it's often been called the cabbage strategy, uh, and they just plant an air, airstrip uh, where they wish. And they, they just spread out across the, this huge area. I mean, a lot of these islands are actually a metre underwater. But if you've got a reef there, you can build a solid structure on top of it. And the Chinese at the moment have about seven uh, airstrips across those Spratly Islands. They've got about 20 in total around the South China Sea. And they intend to be there for a very long time indeed and prevent others uh, from intruding. And you can see the way they menace um, flights by the US, for example, and prevent navies getting anywhere close to those islands. That that They're really having quite an expansionist, aggressive, nationalistic policy. And the, and the Americans and the Brits are sailing their ships um, up and down there to make that point, aren't they? Make their point. In exactly the same way that the West does this in the Black Sea, because the Russians see that as their private lake, and the Chinese are trying to do the same with the South China Sea. So these air bases that were originally secret, just as we said at the beginning, as time moves on, the secrecy, the veil of secrecy, tends to slip away, and you can see the entire exercise for what it is. Especially when you can go on Google Earth and have a good look. It always helps. And uh, you mentioned the Russians. They've been at it in the uh, North Pole. Absolutely. I mean, as, as the Arctic ice melts, as the ice sheets disappear, uh, Russia would like to say it becomes more vulnerable, but actually they want access to the resources. They want a strategic presence. So they are building that up. And in the Franz Josef, archipelago, uh, way north, um, much further north than they have ever been, you know, beyond the Kola Peninsula, beyond Murmansk, they are building air bases. And there's one up and running at present. They have nuclear submarines turning up there, poking their snorkels through the ice. They have transport aircraft landing there. They have a lot of military equipment and uh, tracked vehicles around and wheeled vehicles around they will plan to build their presence and, and stay there. And is that partly to do with all the oil and so on that's supposed to be there, or is it just that they don't want people coming through in their, with their ships that aren't Russian? It's, it's, it's got all those elements in it. It's also got the element that Putin is chippy. 
he wants to make a point that Russia is on the map, that, that you can't ignore them. Uh, that's very important to the Russians. Well, like so often in many of our talks, we come full circle because these bunkers, they're secret, then the strategic situation changes, they become redundant and people get to know about them and some of them even end up being museums. So how would you summarise this, Jamie? I'd say that it's quite extraordinary that if you go around Europe today, you could be walking along and then suddenly stumble on upon a building or a pile of rubble that used to be Gestapo headquarters. You go to Prince Albrechtstrasse, 8 Prince Albrechtstrasse in Berlin, and that was the Gestapo headquarters, and the entranceway is still there. Whenever I'm in Berlin, I always go and pay my respects to those who went as prisoners into the cells below that building that was once there, because so many of the July 20 plotters, for example, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, they went through there. Oster, Canara, all these people uh, went through there and so many of them were tortured and so many of them were executed. And uh, ended up hanging on a piece of piano. Yes. You go to Vienna and the Gestapo headquarters there is just a pile of rock and, and inscribed on it are the words, Niemals vergessen, never forget. And that is something we shouldn't do. So these once secret sites... Uh, the headquarters, really, of the secret police of Nazi Germany uh, really stand as an example of the horrors that the secret state can throw up, and we shouldn't forget. And yet sometimes people do, because I went to Berlin and ended up in one of those clubs, um, you know, international clubs, and it turned out that the building had been the Stasi headquarters, and I felt very uncomfortable being there, and yet looking around the room, I'm sure nobody else in the room had any clue that they were hanging out and having fun in a building where people had been tortured to death. In exactly the same way that you go to the grand hotels of the south of France, and so many of them were used as interrogation centres by both the Vichy government and by the Nazis. And a friend of mine was doing a biography of one of these grand hotels and discovered that uh, during the war, the Nazis had ordered a lot of metal bedsteads without mattresses. And, of course, they were being used as torture platforms uh, for all the prisoners that were coming in into their hands. So... There are, there's a lot of hidden history around and uh, there's a murkier side to so much that is still there today but hidden below the surface. Well, we don't want to end on too gloomy a note, so let's have a PS and lighten up the mood a little bit. Well, I wanted to concentrate really on the, the reuse, the reapplication of, of so many sites and certainly from the Cold War. Across America, you have redundant missile silos for Atlas F missiles and Titan II missiles. And you get Airbnbs, you get people living in their bachelor pads below ground. Uh, th these are 35 feet below ground. Arkansas, Texas, New York State. I mean, they're, they're, they're all over the place. I should think they're a prepper's dream, aren't they? Of what dream? A prepper. Prepper. These are the people who are preparing for Armageddon. Oh, oh, is that And they, they like, you know, they probably buy a silo and put lots of tin goods in there and, and, um, and weaponry. 
and then die from lead poisoning from the tins. Well, or, or just die from not being able to, you know, knit a jersey because they forgot to put granny in the silo. <laughs> well, I mean, these or are how the, to make a candle. The, these are the problems. But you have to choose your silo because the Atlas E lay on its side and that's far harder to turn into a decent, neat little oh, silo house. Do you, oh, I suppose, yes, you're, yes, it's not like living in a high-rise No, 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 it's much, more, it's much more difficult. But actually, the photographs of these places, you, you've got a very nice circular construction where the actual missiles sat. I, so, I think I'd rather go out in a blaze of glory yeah. come the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> well, you're probably going to get some mad survivalist who hunts you down with a crossbow anyway, <laughs> out in your remote location. Maggie won't allow that to See, happen. You, you never know. But, but there are other bunkers that have used, you know, again, across the world in different locations that have been re-employed. I mean, there's a place in Scotland called Troywood uh, up near St Andrews, and that was going to be a UK government bunker, uh, command bunker. It was two stories deep. It's 100 feet underground. There's a hell of a lot of concrete uh, between you and the surface. Uh, it's got a 400-plus foot tunnel leading down uh, to where you need to be. It's a visitor centre now, but it had in its day it had two cinemas, it had command centres, it had... I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to be a con- in a confined space with uh, politicians, frankly. Well, also, um, you might find that they put the entire UK government in there and then Nicola Sturgeon would just turn the key and lock well, it, them in. If she were down there, I think I'd go out to meet the 30-megaton warhead. <laughs> Do you remember the spitting image where Margaret Thatcher and Geoffrey Howe, the Foreign Secretary, were the only ones left alive? And you went... Um, uh, and Margaret Thatcher said, uh, Jeffrey, it's time to breed. And, and, and he's, he says, can't we leave it to the ants, Prime Minister? <laughs> but, but, but again, in terms of redesigning, redeploying, reusing these facilities, there was a, a large bunker, nuclear bunker in Wiltshire. And that turned out to be used by cannabis growers. They had already harvested 6,000 plants, had over 4,000 left when the place was raided. But, of course, having a lot of concrete above your head means that your infrared uh, heating lamps for the plants are not going to be picked up by drug enforcement bodies. So they, 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 they had a good thing going for a they, while. They had a good thing going for a while, and then they were raided. But it was one of the largest drug busts in southern England. OK, well, you can't pose in Hitler's bathtub like the glamorous war photographer and intrepid Lee Miller doing just that when she reached the Führer's Berlin bunker in 1945. You can't do that, but you can visit Churchill's war rooms for a taste of what it might have felt like to lurk underground in the Second World War, wreathed in tobacco smoke and with the rumbling vibrations of the blitz soaring at your nervous system. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. And don't you have one of Churchill, the stub end of one of Churchill's cigars? I do. It's just on the shelf there. There you go. It made He made my grandfather smoke and it made him rather ill. Yeah, but that's history. That's a piece of history. Bye. Bye. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe on BVH on your podcast app and... It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. 
For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.